Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16, and today is the best day of our lives because it's the only day that we have. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not promised. And today is what we have. And with the living, there is hope. So today is the best day. I declare it because it's the day that I have. But also, as a song that says, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Can I get a witness out here? Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Today we get to have him walk with us and talk with us, rejoice over us with singing, and tell us that we are his own, that we've been bought with the price, his precious blood. We are loved today. So today is the best day of my life. I get to see God work in my circumstances. By my faith and in spite of my faith, or lack thereof, he's a faithful God even when I'm not faithful. Oh yeah, Joel brought a new song on us today. And, uh, and with one song in worship, and Pastor G, moving on with the announcement, y'all have given me a lot of time to preach. Man, I got a lot of time. But, but I can't go too long because today our family is going on a family vacation. So right after church, yes. Right after church, we have to hustle and go get the rental van so they don't give our van to somebody else because you know they're doing that now. (laughs) You know, we don't want to see this day turn into a bad day. (laughs) You get up there at the airport and they say, uh, Mr. Williamson, you're supposed to pick your van up at 12, but it's 12.02 and we've given your van to someone else. And so at that point, I don't want to speak in other tongues. I want to be able Say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Thank you. But yeah, we're, we are going as a family to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And uh, then we're going to go on over to Charleston and see Darina's grandmother. How old is your grandmother? 93-year-old grandmother who's still living on her own in her home. And we're going to go see her. So uh, we're going to make some memories. So keep us in your prayers. Lord willing, we'll be back Friday or Saturday sometime and uh, be back with you on Sunday. So all right, Dante, are you excited about going, man? That's my boy, Dad, that's my boy. My my son, see, for for the vacation to be great for him, he's gotta find a good thrift store. Am I right about it, son? He loves thrifting. Anybody else here like thrifting? My boy likes thrifting. And for me, if I can find a good comic book store, I'm set. I'm good, you know. So pray our strength in the Lord that we can find a thrift store and a comic book shop. Amen. Amen. That's worship. All right. All right. Well, let me pray for us. (laughs) Lord, would you feed us? Would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Would you lead us? 
would you please embolden us to be all that you called us and ordained us to be. And that we cannot do in our own strength because Jesus, you said, without me, you can do nothing. We can't live for you without you because without you, we are nothing but with you. Lord God, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And you put your gospel in our mouths and in our hands and in our feet. Lord, we thank you for the things that we get to do in the community to serve people, to help people, to build people up. But right now in this worship experience, we need you to fill us up so that we can go out there and make a difference. And Lord, making a difference sometimes involves sitting at dining room tables, having conversations with family and friends who see things in a different light, a different vantage point, and that's okay. But when our differences lead to arguments and fights, especially about race, politics, and history, I pray that as your people, we can have a kind of uh, philosophy that is based first and foremost on the word, grounded in the word of God, through which we develop our worldview. So help us today, Lord, to listen to you speak. And may we not try to add anything to it, but only agree with what you've said. So dad, put a guard on my mouth um, I'm excited to teach and preach because I get to do it. I, I don't have to be here. You allowed me to be here and help me, Daddy, to please you and in so doing, feed your flock, your precious lambs. Bless those who are watching online and at home. May your spirit empower them right where they are. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us or watching for the first time, um, for the past couple of weeks, we've been in a new series called the 1619 Sermon Series. The 1619 Sermon Series, and this series uh, was inspired uh, by the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, what she compiled and put out through the New York Times back in August of 2019 to commemorate the 400th year anniversary of when Africans first arrived in Jamestown, Virginia in the colonies of the United States of America. And so she wrote that project and um, many have loved it, some have not. But I thank God for the fact that it talked about a subject we really don't like talking about in this country, but we must talk about it. It's a part of our history and not only talking about it in our classrooms and in the halls of academia, but also talking about this history from our pulpits because racism uh, has impacted every sphere of our existence in this country. It's not just a thing of the past, it is still a thing of the present. But how are we as God's people to be in this world but not of it? How are we to be spiritual people who know how to deal with real issues and challenges? Um, and I thank God that at Strong Tower, we get to work through it. We haven't arrived. No, 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 it's messy, but at least we're addressing these things 
that the world is talking about. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, all of our messages will come from 16, 19 passages in the Bible. Um, Acts 16, verse 19 reads, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. But when her masters saw. So earlier in this passage in verse 16, according to the New King James Version, it says that there was a slave girl who was possessed with the spirit. In the Greek, that word spirit is python. That she was, a, she was possessed with a python spirit. We know that Satan has been a, uh, illustrated and described in scripture as being a snake, a serpent. Uh, and so this, this python, this demon had a stronghold on her, allowing her to tell the future. Uh, but what we want to see is that there was a slave girl and she had masters, plural. And she brought her masters great profit. Now, we are not going to spend time in this passage today. That will be next week, where we'll exegete Acts 16, 19 in its context. But we're gonna use this passage today to launch into discussing the topic of slavery and the Bible. And so that's my title today, The Bible and Slavery, part one. And next week, we'll get into, Lord permitting, uh, the passage, Acts 16, verses 16, even down to verse uh, 24. But today, The Bible and Slavery, part one. If you tried to tell me that slavery is not a prevalent theme in the Bible. If someone came to me and said, slavery is not a prevalent theme in the Bible, it would let me know that you haven't read the Bible. Because slavery is a prevalent theme, a dominant theme in both the Old and the New Testament. As a result, when we think about slavery, that means that slaves, are found throughout the Bible. A slave is a man, woman, boy, or girl who is voluntarily or involuntarily the legal property of another person. So let me say that again. A slave is a man, woman, boy, or girl who is voluntarily or involuntarily the legal property of another person being bought with a price and owned by another, an enslaved person is henceforth forced to obey and work for their master with little to no compensation or appreciation. So a slave is someone who is owned by someone else because that person purchased him or her, and now that person is forced to obey and work for their master with little to no compensation or appreciation. The life of a slave is literally bound up in the life of the master. The life of the slave is literally bound up in the life of the master, which is why we'll see even next week how God redeemed slavery to be able to use this real experience in the then known world 
to liken it to a spiritual or the spiritual walk of a believer because we are called slaves of Christ. Meaning that it's not our will, but it's his will. That we obey the master, we submit our will to his will because the life of the slave is literally bound up in the life of his or her slave master. And as we'll see when we talk about slavery, uh, slaves would be branded with the master's seal on their bodies. Or even if a slave went from uh, uh, serving a master in Hebrew culture for six years and then determining that he or she wants to stay with that master, that master would then pierce that slave's ear uh, 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 as a sign that that slave has chosen to voluntarily stay with that master and the earring, the piercing, would be a sign of that. The Bible has so much to say about slavery. And the life of the slave is to abide by the will of the slave master. As mentioned, the reality and cultural complexity of slavery, I said cultural complexity of slavery, dominates much of the Old and the New Testament. You may not know this, but Abraham had hundreds of slaves. The father of our faith had hundreds of slaves. And that doesn't always fit when we're teaching our children the song Father Abraham. He had many sons, but we don't like to remix it and say Father Abraham had many slaves. But there's one episode in scripture where he took 318 men in his household to go and rescue Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. He had slaves. The father of our faith had slaves. But not only Abraham, but Sarah, his wife, had a slave named Hagar, who was an Egyptian. She had a slave, and she even physically assaulted her slave. And so these things are in the Bible. Jacob and Isaac had slaves, and we know that Joseph became a slave in Egypt. Am I in the book so far? Am I in the book so far? That, that Joseph became a slave in Egypt when his brothers sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who then took him down to Egypt, who then sold him to the Egyptians, and he found himself in Potiphar's house. He was a slave. The Bible says that the Egyptians enslaved the Jews for 400 years. And we read right over that when we see it, and we'll read a passage today that talks about it. And we just read right over 400 years. But that was 400 years. I mean, century after century after century, people in literal bondage. And so although it's not our experience, I pray that God would allow us to be sensitive and empathetic as we read the, the truths of Scripture and even the pages of our history to see that not only did slavery happen then, slavery is still happening now around the world. And so we read in the Bible that the Assyrians enslaved the Jews and the Babylonians enslaved the Jews for 70 years. An entire letter in the New Testament is dedicated to trying to heal the relationship between a runaway slave named Onesimus and his slave master named 
Philemon. And so Paul is the mediator trying to reconcile these two because Onesimus ran away from his master. And while he was away, he ran into Jesus and became born again. And Paul says, I'm sending him back to you as your brother in Christ, and I trust that you will do the right thing in regards to him. So Old Testament, New Testament, and as I mentioned next week, I will break down the context of Acts chapter 16, verse 19. But for today, let me say a few things about the Bible and slavery and take my seat and go to the airport. <laughs> the first thing I want you to see is that slavery was widely practiced in the ancient world. Okay, let's just start there. Slavery was widely practiced in the ancient world. The economies of ancient Greece, Egypt, and Rome were based on slave labor. And so it was a part of the culture, slavery. And let me just put a pin here. As we talk about slavery in the scriptures, we got to recognize that the slavery that we're somewhat aware of in this country, as far as the African slave trade, these two things are not the same, okay? So there was more of a humane element, not completely humane, but there was more of a humane element in slavery, as far as slavery being practiced in the days of antiquity. In first century Rome, one out of every three persons was a slave. So in first century Rome, one out of every three persons was a slave. So it was common. In the days of antiquity, slavery, slavery was racially diverse, which means it cut across various skin tones and ethnicities and nationalities. Slavery was diverse whereas slavery in America was entirely race-based, okay? So it was diverse then, but in America, and in the America, Central America, and South America, and North America, slavery was based on race, okay? Mm. Second thing I want you to see is that a person could become a slave for a number of reasons. You could be captured in war and then become a slave. You could default on a debt and become a slave. You could voluntarily sell yourself and become a slave. You could be sold as a child of destitute parents in order to appease a debt. So you dig that? So if Doreen and I were laid on a car payment, we could offer up Karis or whomever to the collection agency and say, y'all keep her and work her so that it will uh, translate to take care of our debt. That's how they did it back then. Take me back to the old days, right, somebody said. But you could also become a slave if you were birthed to slave parents. Or if you were convicted of a crime and you were thus a prisoner, you could become a slave. Or the worst thing, you could be kidnapped and become a slave. So many ways a person could become a slave. Some slaves were domestic servants, meaning that they worked indoors, they worked in homes. 
Abraham's chief slave went to find a wife for Isaac in Genesis chapter 24. He sent his chief slave who was over his house, who was the steward of everything that he had. He said, go find a bride for Isaac. Joseph, who was a slave in Egypt, he became the overseer of Potiphar's house. And so again, he, he had a domestic role working in the house of Potiphar. And it was a good job until the boss's wife, you know what happened, and, and he had to run for his life. And then he was accused of doing something um, horrible to her. And even as he goes to jail, the hand of God is with him. And he comes out of prison and he ends up being the governor of all Egypt. So he goes from serving in a domestic capacity to now serving in a civil capacity, all as a slave. So we're reading the Bible with new lenses this morning. Help us, Lord. And some slaves, as I mentioned, were civil servants, like an African man that's found in the book of Jeremiah. Matter of fact, he's from the country of Ethiopia. And the Bible says that his name is Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. And it says that multiple times in, I believe it's Jeremiah 38 and 39, because he's going to rescue Jeremiah, the Hebrew prophet. So this descendant of Noah in the line of Ham named Abed-Melech is going to rescue this other descendant of Noah in the line of Shem or the Semitic people named Jeremiah. They're going to come together and work together. And the word ebed in the Hebrew literally means slave. So slave Malek from Ethiopia. So we see this in the Bible. And he was a civil servant who was a eunuch who worked in the king's court, but who used his political power to help an innocent prophet who had been thrown into a muddy cistern. It's all through the Bible. Some men and women were temple slaves, making many of them prostitutes. Other slaves were craftsmen and artisans. Some slaves were forced to be gladiators. The Jews enslaved the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 because the Gibeonites had come to them and didn't tell them that they were uh, people right there on the rim of the promised land going in. They acted like they had come from far away. And so they uh, tricked Joshua and the people into making a covenant with them. Uh, but then Joshua found out that they were Canaanites, Gibeonites right there. And so because they made a covenant to let them live, they couldn't kill them. Because the Bible says Joshua didn't pray about it before he made the decision to get into a covenant with them. See, there are a lot of good messages in the word. Uh, so before you make a major decision to link up with somebody, you better pray about it. He didn't pray about it. He linked up with somebody that was deceptive, a group of people. And because they couldn't go back on their word, they said, this is what's going to happen to you guys. We're not going to kill you, but you will be slaves for the rest of your lives, serving as woodcutters and water carriers. Joshua chapter 9. Woodcutters and water carriers. And those people said, we'd rather be slaves to y'all than be destroyed by y'all. My God. Oftentimes, slaves were more educated and more skilled than their owners. 
Again, get this into your mind. Sometimes slaves were more educated, more intelligent, and more skilled than their owners. For instance, in Joseph's case as a slave, he had more wisdom than anyone in Egypt because they didn't know how to handle the famine that was coming. But this slave who had the hand of God on him, he said, let me tell you what to do. And he not only saved Egypt, but he saved Canaan and other surrounding countries during that famine. Not only that, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel is taken into captivity by the Babylonians, uh, he had more knowledge than anyone in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. He had more knowledge than the satraps and the magicians and all the folk. Uh, and so God got the glory when Daniel would speak with such wisdom, eloquence, and skill. God got the glory even from Nebuchadnezzar. Third thing I want you to see is that although God allowed slavery, he used slavery in redemptive ways. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, uh-huh. See, I'm not just going to teach. I'm going to have to start preaching here in a minute. Uh, uh, I, I might start shouting here in a minute because, man, this stuff just isn't written for us to get some intellectual understanding. But, man, there's a lot to apply into our daily lives from this good stuff. Uh, uh, so although God allowed it, God used it. And there are a lot of people who can't understand why would God allow evil in the world and because there's evil in the world, God can't be good and God can't be real. So therefore, I'm not going to follow God and I'm going to go out and live an evil life out of hatred and bitterness against the God that I say doesn't exist. I'm going to do evil because I sense, I, I believe that he's not doing anything with evil. Well, here's the thing. God will allow things and he will use everything because Romans 8.28 is still true, that he's able to work all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. The thing about God is that God knows the end of the story. He knows the end from the beginning. We're right here in the middle of this thing wondering how this evil was going on in this situation. But God is like, I'm down the road because I am the I am that I am. Uh, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. I'm in all three realms of time all at the same time. So I know how this is going to work out for my glory and your good. So stop complaining where you are and trust me. Which is why Joseph could get over the fact that his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites who sold him to the Egyptians. He went to jail. He could get over all of that because he eventually saw the hand of God in his story and in the story of his people where he could say, what you meant, are y'all with me? What you meant for what? God meant for good. <clears throat> so watch this now, watch this. Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 13. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Remember, he said, I'm going to give you descendants that will outnumber the stars in heaven and the sands on the seashore. He says that those descendants will be, how did he say this here? Strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. So God not only allowed slavery, but in this case, brothers and sisters, he's ordaining slavery. There are no accidents with him 
only providence, and he's ordaining slavery, and he says that not only will you serve them, you're going to be afflicted in the midst of the serving. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, here's that happy and redemptive ending, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God says it's going to be rough, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to bring you out. And when I bring you out, you're going to come out with great possessions. So did it happen? Yeah, it happened. So the God who allowed slavery, he used slavery in redemptive ways because he wanted to get Israel where they needed to be spiritually and even geographically. I wish I had time to really unpack this. Because God had to take them through this uh, period of enslavement. Uh, to discipline them, to purge them, uh, to sanctify them, to get them looking upward to Yahweh as the only true and living God in the midst of a culture that worshiped the Nile and worshiped the moon and worshiped the sun and worshiped alligators and worshiped people. God put, sent them through something. So that they would know that God, Yahweh, I am that I am, is the one who made a way for them out of no way. And there is no God beside him, and there is no God above him. He had to take them through some things so that they could get to know the God that they professed to know from their ancestors. Uh, uh, God will take us through some stuff to make sure that that amen we say on Sunday, we really believe on Monday. There's a purpose in the trial, not to kill us, but to purify us, to make us look more to God so that we end up looking more like God. Every trial, every trial, there's a purpose in the pain, Lord Jesus. And that's why your theology has to come through when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. You got to know that verse one said, the Lord is my shepherd. So I'm going through this valley over here, but it's my shepherd and I'm following him. And wherever he leads me, there I will follow. Because as I'm following him, goodness and mercy are following me. And he has a nerve to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He flipped this thing that was bad and made it into something good. But I wouldn't know that if he made everything easy for me. Because if I didn't have a problem, I, I wouldn't know that God would be able to solve them. Oh, Lord. So he says, I've ordained Slavery for my own people. But number four, when God regulated slavery for the Jews, it was to be a non-oppressive system. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, now, now it's about to get good here. When he regulated slavery for the Jews, it was already practiced in the world. It was everywhere. Matter of fact, the first time we read of the word servant or slave in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood. So back to the old days, prehistoric times, Fred and Barney. I mean, we're going way back. And even then, slavery was a part of the culture immediately preceding the flood. But God says, I'm going to step into this and I'm going to regulate slavery for my unique and peculiar people who were not a people, but I made my people. And this system that y'all are going to have is not going to be an oppressive system. 
You see, God allowed slavery, not oppression. It was to be different with him. God allowed slavery, but not oppression. Israel's laws, listen to this, protected the Hebrew slave and the Gentile slave. Why? Because both are made in the image of God, and the image of God is to be treated with value and dignity and grace. So just because you may be on a quote-unquote lower social rung of society, that doesn't mean you have the permission to treat people like garbage and trash and animals. So God says, we're going to regulate this, we're going to do it different. And another thing here is that slaves in this system were to be set free after six years or set free in the year of Jubilee, which was on the 50th year. So in other words, lifetime servitude was never a part of God's system with the Jews. Only if a person wanted to stay as a slave would they then stay and get their ear pierced and be that person's slave until they die. But God had said, no, after six years, you go free. Number five, the 1611 King James Version of the Bible minimized the sting of contextual slavery through its translation. All right. Are, are, you, are you buckled in? Matter of fact, take the seatbelt off because you might shout or you might throw something. I don't know. But the 1611 King James Version Bible, there's some people say that Bible, if it was good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. As if the 1611 is what Moses wrote on Mount Sinai and, and that Moses spoke with Elizabethan uh, uh, language thee and thou and all of that stuff that's beautiful and that people love but it is a version there were many versions at that time and that had come before the king james version the king james version was just one in that time that ended up becoming a favorite of this country the geneva bible preceded the 1611 king james version bible but i keep saying 1611 because this series is called 1619 Sermon Series. And Africans arrived on the shore. Some say they came first as indentured servants, and then they became slaves. But whatever the case, they came here in this country, and uh, that would lead to slavery, 1619. So eight years prior, the 1611 version of the Bible authorized by the King of England, King James, went into effect. And when we read the King James Bible, it minimizes the sting of slavery within the context of 1611. We'll learn in a minute that European slavery started in the mid-1400s. So by the time the 1611 King James comes along, Slavery has existed for almost 200 years. So when they're making their translation from copies of Hebrew and Greek parchments to try to make an English version, their translators didn't translate with the best integrity. Ah, watch this, y'all. This blew me away. The King James translators used the word servant 885 times. So when you read the King James Version, Old Testament, New Testament, 
You're going to see servant, 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 885 times. I grabbed my Young's Concordance, and I started counting servant. And after a while, I said, I'm going to have to trust this dude in this book that said it's 885, because it's a whole lot of them here. I'm counting one, two, three. Uh, and I, woo, it's a lot. Over 800 times, servant is used. But how many times is the word slave used in the King James Version? Zero. Zero. You will not find the word slave singular in the King James Version, but you will find servant over 880 times. Hmm. What's going on here? And the word slaves, plural, is used only one time in the King James Version of the Bible. And that's found in Revelation chapter 18, verse 13. So slavery is prevalent in the world and in England at that time. But when they come across certain Greek and Hebrew words, they use a softer word called servant as opposed to the, the messier word slave. By not having the word slave or slavery in its translation, it would appear the European translators attempted to soften the blow of how cruel slavery was in their context and culture. Uh -huh. Some of you still not tracking because, again, you, you think the King James Version is inspired. No, the copies we hold are not inspired. The original autographs that Jeremiah and Moses and Paul wrote, they are inspired by God. But the copies that come are authoritative. When Jesus ministered and they handed him the scroll in the temple and he read from Isaiah about the spirit of the Lord being upon me, that was not the original autograph. That was a copy of a copy of a copy of the original autograph. And he quoted it with authority. So the translations we have, they are authoritative, but they're not perfect. Because you may even come across a copying error in some of the Bible, where they may say in one part it was 24,000, another one may say 2,400, so a comma, a zero. It doesn't affect the context of the message, but people back then before the printing press came had to painstakingly copy word for word. And the Jews were very meticulous with this. They would count the number of words on a page that they were copying from after they copied it, and if the number on their page didn't match the number on the page they were copying from, from another copy, they would then tear up their copy and start all over again. So they were meticulous about how the word was transferred from people to people in uh, uh, century to century. And the King James is just a version of the original autographs, which we do not have. But Jesus quoted copies we quote copies, copies have authority, your Bible has authority. But also we gotta recognize that God superintended the writing of scripture through prophets and apostles so that the things they wrote or the things they spoke and other people wrote down were inspired and without error because they came directly from God through a tainted vessel, a man. So, so what came out was inspired and without error.
But as I mentioned, the copies not only can have errors, but listen, biases and slants. Mm, mm, mm. Why is this important? I mean, look at what's going on today. Look at how many conservative Christians interpret the events of January 6, 2021. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the same event, but there are people who walk away with different interpretations of the event. And they think that their interpretation of the event is inspired by God and without error. But you and I, people in touch with reality, we look at what happened on January 6th and we call it an insurrection. Watch the word. We call it a riot. But people with a political and even spiritual agenda call it a good-natured protest that was spoiled by a few troublemakers. Or they will say it was, choreo it was a choreographed attack planned by Antifa and BLM, Black Lives Matter. Oh, Antifa did it? Black Lives Matter did it? Well, let's go ahead and authorize this commission to be able to find out if in fact what you're saying is true. No, we don't want no commission now. No, we, we, don't, want, we don't want you to investigate our terminology and our interpretation of the events. Because, we, you know, we know deep down it makes no sense why people on the quote-unquote left who won the election is going to all of a sudden come out there on January 6th and try to stop uh, the members of Congress from affirming the election that the left won. Uh, it don't make sense. Why would they go out? And as far as Black Lives Matter, I saw one black dude out there. I saw one Negro out there. It was not an insurrection, it was not a riot, it was a peaceful protest, and these people came in. So if people are interpreting events like that now, they were doing that back then, in the name of God. Because when you watch Fox News, if you watch it, whatever news station you watch, people will think that they are interpreting on behalf of God, especially Fox or faux news, fake news. I probably lost a couple members with that, but that's okay. It's okay. We call it a pro-Trump mob, speared on by lies that the election was rigged. That's what we call it. Because I look at this thing and I say, now listen, nothing was wrong with the electoral process when your guy won. But when your guy lost and Georgia was taken, and Arizona would say, oh, something must be wrong with the ballots. And so now they're trying to use their power, systemic racism, to make it hard for people, especially people of color and people of lesser means, to vote by putting all of these things in the way in order for them to be discouraged in the voting process. Because they've got laws. So therefore, conservative Christians, Black people don't trust your interpretation of January 6th. Conservative Christian. Black people don't trust your interpretation of January 6th, and neither do we trust your interpretation of what critical race theory is. Oh, I'm going to talk about that in a couple weeks. <laughs> you have no right to tell black people what critical race theory is or is not if you have not sat at the feet of black people to learn what critical race theory is. Mm-mm-mm. 
but you boogeyman it. You make it evil. You make it bad, and y'all label it. And it is what it is because you say so, which again comes from the spirit of white supremacy. So, so, so I don't trust your interpretation of January 6th or critical race theory because we don't trust you the same way our enslaved ancestors didn't trust the Christian colonizers' interpretation of Genesis chapter 9. I went too fast. Because back in the day, the colonizers, in order to feel better about enslaving Africans, they had to go to the Bible and find a subtext to support their racism. Genesis 9. Oh, that, there it is. Uh, Noah in a drunken stupor curses Canaan and says, a slave of slaves you will be, and you will dwell in the tents of Shem, and you will serve Japheth. So there it is, justification that black people are cursed by Noah, cursed by God, to be slaves as their lot in life. Now, again, this came after the institution was gone. Then folks' uh, consciences were convicted over the cruel manner of this kind of slavery. They then had to go to God to put a Band-Aid on how they were feeling. And they used the scripture. Oh, I wish I had time. I preached on this before. I'll preach on it again. Uh, number one, Canaan was cursed, not Ham. Ham is the father of all people of color. But it amazes me, though how when I read them big old Bibles that they put on your coffee table that you get at thrift stores. <laughs> Everybody up in there white. Everybody white. Even the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, that brother white. Why is that? It amazes me. Ham is always black when it comes to a curse. But Ham and his descendants are never black when it comes to positive contributions. Because you are twisting the interpretation in order to suit your racism. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. so, 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 we don't trust your interpretation now because we saw what your interpretations did then. Let's talk about the New King James Version, which I like to use. Came out in 1982. It uses the word slave, slaves, and slavery 72 times. So that's better than the one time in the King James Version. So 71 more times in the New King James Version. I'm going to do a comparison with you on a couple of verses. We're going to compare Psalm 105.17 in the King James Version to Psalm 105.17 in the New King James Version. So in the King James, Psalm 105.17 says, He sent a man before them. Even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. So, so there's the word servant, King James. Now, New King James says, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Which one is more consistent with the context of the story? Calling Joseph a servant or calling Joseph a slave? Calling him a slave. Now, a slave is a servant. But not every servant is a slave. Can you dig that? So, so, so he's called a slave. But back in the day, no, servant. Why? Because they're, again, trying to soften what's going on in their culture. We don't want to say that it's a bad system. <laughs> so, so we'll call them servants in the Bible over 800 times. 
Well, let's go on to Matthew 20, 27 in the King James. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Man, that sounds good. But the New King James hits a little bit differently. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. So God is redeeming this slave culture because the kingdom of God is saying, if you want to be great, be a slave. But the empire of the world says, if you want to be great, dominate over people. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, 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 We're going somewhere here. You see, Joseph couldn't be considered a slave because Joseph was a patriarch and he was seen in a positive and powerful light. But to make him a slave, uh, that, that throws the whole narrative off. And here, Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, slaves were first. But in the empire of the Christian slave owner, slaves were last. Translation means a lot. Let's compare John 8, 34 and 35. Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever, you know when the King James, whosoever committeth, committeth sin is the servant of sin. Hmm. Well, New King James, uh, 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 do I have New King James? I can't hear you. We got it? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Which one makes you see your need for Jesus more? Calling me a servant or calling me a slave to sin? Ha, ha, ha. All right, all right. Let's go to another one here. This one is not up there. This, this one's in my notes. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 18, in the King James Version, Joseph's brothers who had sold him into slavery, they were afraid Joseph was going to kill them after daddy died. And they came to him and they said to him, we are your servants, King James Version. But in the New International Version, not new inspired version, but new international version. Genesis 50, 18, the interpreters interpreted it this way. We are your slaves. Again, which one has more impact, servant or slave? Here's the point. They made their brother a slave when they sold him. He wasn't a servant. This wasn't something he chose. This was against his will. And so, therefore, they knew the depth of what they did to their brother, even though they lied to their father about it for over 20 years and said an animal devoured him. They lived with that lie and it ate him up. Then when father dies, they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to do unto us the way we did unto him. He's going to treat us like slaves. So let's just go in and tell him, we're your slaves. And Joseph was like, no, y'all are still my brothers because, again, God was over and in control of this whole thing. And, again, what you meant for evil, he worked for good. And come on, y'all, let's get up and work this land that I got Pharaoh to give to us the best of the land. Oh, God, this this is such good stuff here. Number six, Europeans did not invent slavery. They just perfected it. Mm -hmm. Europeans didn't invent slavery. Because I'm talking to white folks many times, and the dialogue turns into a debate. They then say, well, everybody owns slaves. Every culture went through slavery. Yeah, but not like what happened here in America. 
Okay? Again, we, we may be in the fruit family, but these are apple and oranges here. So, so, so Europeans did not invent it. They just perfected it. In the mid-1400s, approximately 1444, many historians say, the Portuguese were the first to sail to the Gold Coast of Africa. And they were sailing to the Gold Coast of Africa because they were looking for gold because Portugal was going through financial hardship. But as they were looking for gold, they stumbled upon what has been called black gold. In other words, Nubians, Africans. So they found gold in the hills, but they also found gold with ebony skin. And the Europeans at that point entered into the system of buying Africans from Africans and transporting them from Africa. So they didn't come with the intention of getting slaves on the first trip. They came trying to find gold and ran into black gold. And there was a system already in place where Africans were enslaving Africans. And they would have prisoners of war and criminals and things like that. And they were already selling Africans to Africans. Matter of fact, if we go back further, the Arabic people were enslaving Africans in the name of Allah and Islam. Oh, I wish I could chase that. Because if Islam is the natural religion of the black man, then explain to me why Muslims were enslaving black folk. But anyway, that's a whole, I can't, whoop, stay on tax, brother. It's a mess. So the fact that black people were enslaving black people does not let Europeans off the hook for enslaving black people. That's the art of deflection. I'm not going to take responsibility. Look what y'all did to each other. Yeah, and we still selling each other out today. We still do that, man. We still selling each other over whatever in order to prosper for ourselves. Why? Because it's deep-seated in the heart of man. That's not just something that's on black folk. White folk sell white folk out too. Hebrew people sell Hebrew people out too. Here's our brother, give us 20 shekels. That means them 10 brothers got two shekels of silver each. When they walk back home, do you think that their brother, <laughs> that, that those two shekels was worth more than their brother? But when your heart is off and, and, and you got the love of money, which is the root of all evil, you'll kidnap, you'll buy, you'll sell, you'll trade, your own people and other people, but all people made in the image of God. So Europeans got into the system of the slave trade that was happening in Africa. And around 1998, I was uh, invited to go to Africa for the first time. And I was invited there by a president of one of the countries that was on the Gold Coast or the west side of Africa. The president of Benin, his name was Matthew Karakou. And something was going on in their country where they wanted to move forward, but they knew they couldn't move forward as a nation until the president said, we have to confess the sins that we've committed against our own people. You know, because he had become a Christian, he was starting to read the Bible, and he saw Daniel confessing the sins of his forefathers. He saw Nehemiah confessing the sins of his forefathers. So this president, new Christian, Matthew Karakou said, Africans sold Africans, and I'm going to invite Africans in the diaspora, African Americans, to come back to the motherland so that we can apologize to you for selling your ancestors into slavery to the Europeans. It was powerful, man. I got some of it on video. And that's when I learned 
that Africans sold Africans. But the Portuguese had representatives at this meeting too. And they got up in tears apologizing for sending Prince Henry the Navigator in the 1400s to the coast of Africa looking for gold and how they got involved. And not only did they get involved first with Africans, they then capitalized on the system and created their own slavery system without bargaining with the African chiefs. So this is where we then get the narrative that white folks took Africans from Africa. Because some people I say, well, black folks sold them. Yeah, they did, but white folk took them as well. Everybody's guilty in this. Why do I say that? Because once the European slave traders saw how it worked, they're going to march the captives from inland out to the shore. Okay, okay. We're giving them rum and we're giving them sugar. We're giving them uh, some weapons. We're, we're trading. Uh, but you know what? We don't need these chiefs now. Let's find a couple of slaves, people that we can employ, create our own system that eliminates the middleman. So when you go to places like Ghana, there are upwards of 40 slave castles in Ghana. And we went to one called Elmina. And they have the system how they bring them in, where they store them, how they ship them out. And there's a ceremony that the Africans work with the Europeans of religious spiritual ceremony because they knew that as the slaves or the enslaved bodies were leaving Africa never to return, they prayed to their gods that the soul of those Africans would return to Africa upon death. So that everybody was participating in this thing. And Europeans took slavery to an entirely different level when they took enslaved Africans over the Atlantic Ocean. Took it to a whole different level when they packed them in ships like sardines, naked, men, women, boys and girls, pregnant, mixing up tribes on purpose to keep people from speaking in order to form a coup d'etat because they spoke different languages or they were warring and they had to be cramped and packaged in these ships because they had to get as many of them out of Africa as possible to the Americas. It's guesstimated that 12, 10 to 12 million Africans were taken from Africa during the transatlantic slave trade, which was called the Middle Passage. So you're packed in these ships chained for anywhere from 30 to 90 days in darkness, lying in your own excrement. You're throwing up, you're lying in that, and your neighbors. Some went mad. Some committed suicide. Some refused to eat what mess they were throwing down there for them to eat. The triangular trade would start in Europe and then go to Africa and then from Africa to the Americas and then the Americas back to Europe. The triangular tra trade through the Middle Passage. And this went on for over 200 years. And although 12 million started out, many millions died in transport. So much so that when their bodies would be thrown over the side of the ship, people would write and say, sharks 
would follow slave ships because they knew they would be fed eventually by people being thrown overboard or jumping overboard on their own will because before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. And so some jumped. And we don't want this kind of history taught. Why? Because it makes us feel bad. It makes you feel bad because you haven't dealt with it. Because you keep trying to suppress it. Listen, I committed fornication in my life. Yeah. Before I got married, I was a fornicator. But you know what? Because me and Jesus were able to deal with that, he forgave me and everything. I don't get scared when people talk about fornication. I don't get guilty when people talk about fornication. Why? Because me and the Lord had already dealt with that. Matter of fact, I encourage people to preach on it because people need to stop committing fornication. I'll preach on it because people need, and it's in the Bible. So, so it, 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 the only people that don't like when stuff is preached is people who are still struggling with it. If you're not giving, you don't want to hear no sermons about giving. If you're not forgiving, you don't want to hear no sermons about forgiveness. And if you're still dealing with bigotry in your heart, making excuses for your grandparents and your great-grandparents, you don't want to hear no stuff like this because you haven't dealt with this yet. And another reason we know you haven't dealt with it is because most of the people who talk about it look like me. I keep waiting for the white brothers to say something. Cat got your tongue? You talk about everything else, talk about this. Well, we got to leave them that politics. Uh, politics, the Bible is full of politics, and you preach politics whenever you get up and talk about your guy. Talk about this stuff. We're going to invite the black guy in, and we're going to let him talk about it. And if he can get to the parking lot alive, our church can pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> Bring me in once a year, and you feel better. Man, if everybody talked about this, the truth of history, we could move on well. Think about this. We could learn from Germany. We could learn from South Africa. They, they learned something from those periods where they mistreated folks through the Holocaust and through uh, apartheid. But not here in America. We get mad if you want to take down the Nathan Bedford Forest bus in the state capitol in Nashville... Don't you dare touch that, uh, uh, but, but y'all ain't going to be talking about no slavery and white supremacy in the classroom. We're going to write a quick law, get it passed, Christian, uh, 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 critical race theory. No, it ain't going to happen in the school system. So y'all can move on that, but you can't move on this bus that deals with slavery. Y'all double-minded, hypocritical, confused. Lord Jesus, help me, God. Man, I hate the hypocrisy. Black lawmakers in that building got to walk by that bus every day. And rather than listening to him and her tell you what that means to them, you keep whitewashing history to say uh, he became a Christian later in life. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Well, he not up in here because he a Christian. He ain't dressed in no choir robe. He got on his Confederate Army uniform because folk are proud of him for how he hunted and enslaved and killed black people. And you got the nerve to have him up in here? As soon as we go through the laws to get him out, y'all change the laws to keep him in. And say, racism doesn't exist today. Man, all right, y'all. Right. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. Finally, let, 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 me, let me close. I got to go to the airport. Uh, 
The slavery that occurred in the Bible and the slavery that occurred in America were two completely different institutions. The colonizing enslavers skewed the scriptures. Their so-called Christian ministers also practiced selective exegesis because they had the unchecked power to do so. They skewed the scriptures, as we mentioned from Genesis chapter 9, speaking of the curse of Ham, that black people are cursed and we're supposed to be slaves. Uh, that is what Paul calls in 1 Timothy 4.1, a doctrine of demons. But what black folks could stand up at that time and say you were wrong? And once we did start getting some level of voice and footing, if we did speak against it, there were great penalties to pay, like being attacked and killed and having your church burned out. There was selective exegesis. In Ephesians 6.5 and Colossians 3.22, it says, Slaves, obey your masters. Slaves, obey your masters. So whenever they would allow the slaves to have church, they would either bring in a white minister or the hand-picked uh, black slave minister would get up and somewhere in that sermon, there was going to be something about slaves obeying your master. And he is preaching from the slave Bible where they took all the passages out that speak of liberating slaves <laughs> and, and how slave owners are to treat slaves. They took all that out and so the brother's up there trying to preach and there's still a whole lot of puppet preachers like that today. They got the white man watching them. And these brothers who like being in these evangelical circles, they preach what the white man says is acceptable to preach because it's like a cut up Bible. Don't you touch this uh, 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 subject. You, you stay right here if you want to get paid and if you want to stay on the circuit. Uh, so they got a lot of these black folks that's hired by these white uh, uh, organizations and denominations. They're puppets in the pulpit. But there's some of us who can't be bought. <laughs> there's some of us who seek to be prophetic in the pulpit and not puppetic. I created a word in the pulpit. I ain't nobody's puppet. I'm God's slave. And I say what the master says, no matter what the consequences are going to be, even if it's not popular because he never called me to be popular. He called preachers to preach. But back then they had these Bibles, slaves obey your masters. And when some slaves got out of slavery, it was documented that they did not like the apostle Paul because all they heard from Paul was obey, obey, obey. So these slaves, when they would get out, they would say to their children, read to me the Bible, but don't read Paul's letters. Because that's all he talked about was obey. No, that's all they wanted y'all to know that he talked about. And even that was taken out of context. Because if we're going to quote Ephesians and Colossians, why don't we quote Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, that said that slaves were not to work on the Sabbath day. The Bible says, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord, your God, in it you shall do no work nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. In other words, slaves were to have a day off. Not my people. So selective exegesis, we're going to quote Ephesians and Colossians, but not Exodus 20, because we need y'all to work so we can get this harvest in, so we can make this money. So you're going to pick cotton even on Sunday, even on Saturday. You're going to pick cotton. You don't get no days off unless we say you're going to work from sunup to, to, to sundown. You're going to work from can't see to can't see. 
and the life of a slave under most circumstances lasted about 10 years because of the cruel uh, conditions and the workload. Lasted about 10 years. So if you saw an old slave, you saw an oxymoron. Exodus 21.12 says, slaves were to serve six years and be set free. That didn't happen here in America. They didn't quote that part. Uh, Leviticus 25, 39 through 43, slaves were to be set free in the year of Jubilee. That didn't happen here in America. Exodus 20, verse 20 says, 21, 20, any man who beat a slave to death was to be severely punished. They didn't apply that part. Exodus 21, 16, if a person kidnaps a man, the kidnapper was to be put to death. But if you think your kidnapping is missionary work, and you're putting these slaves on ships named after Jesus, because you got to give those cannibals and those barbaric people the gospel. So slavery is a benefit to get them into heaven as if the gospel didn't reach Africa before the slave traders got there in 1400. I mean, when I read my Bible, when the Ethiopian eunuch who uh, looked like me went back home, he took the gospel back to Africa. I go to the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba came and talked with Solomon. We go through the Bible, black folks today, and we knew God. We didn't meet God at slavery. We knew God before slavery. But if only one side gets to tell the story, then you believe that you did us a benefit and you're still doing us a benefit to this day by letting us work with you. By letting LeBron James get a million dollar contract. How dare he question? How dare he take a knee? How dare he speak out? Just bounce the ball and dribble and shut up because we're allowing you to make some money. Who do you think you are? I can do more than bounce a basketball, thank you. I can be known more for just manual labor. I do have a mind and a mouth and a soul and conviction. Ah, oh, Lord. Exodus 21, verses 26 through 27. If a slave owner knocked out a slave's eye or tooth, the slave was set free. So if a slave owner is, hits a slave, knocks a tooth out, brother, go free. Gouges an eye. God put all of that in place. Why? Because you're not going to mistreat these people because they are servants and slaves. There are repercussions if you do it to yourself and to your pocketbook because for some people, you can only get their attention when you get, start messing with their money. They ain't going to listen until you start messing with their money. And then finally, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 16. Oh, fellas, here we go. Y'all listen to this. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall. Is that the right one? Is that the right one? Do I got the right one? Uh, 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 keep on going. Keep on going. I got I to gotta move on. Keep on going. Hit me with verse 15. Y'all know I can't see. All right. You shall not give back to his master. Okay. Go back to 14. All right. Sorry, fellas. Sorry, fellas. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp 
to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. You shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. Anybody ever read this before? He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. What's God saying? If a slave decides, I'm up out of here, and runs away, and joins up with someone else, the Bible says the person who the slave is joined up with is not to bring the person back to the original slave owner, but let that person, that slave, live with you for good. In other words, don't chase runaways. Uh, We want to quote the Bible, right? But not this stuff. So when slaves ran away from plantations, owners was like, that's my property running away that I paid for. I'm going to get them with the slave patrols that ended up becoming the police in our culture. Matter of fact, we're going to write some laws into Congress called the uh, Fugitive Slave Act that required all escaped slaves upon capture be returned to the slaver. So, so, so if you run away, the law says you got to bring that slave back. But see, there was some good white folk during that time. There's always good white folk. I know some. And uh, they would receive these runaways in their homes on the stations called the Underground Railroad. They would open up their homes and their basements and they would accept escaping slaves. They would put lights in the window to let let them know that this was a safe place for you to run to out of your misery and towards a better day. And then the laws were passed because they knew good, real Christian white folk were helping these runaway black folks. So they said, "Uh, the, the, the Fugitive Slave Act, you must return them. But those abolitionists said, no, no. We're going to obey God more than man. Uh, 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 You'll go to jail. Well, I'll have to go to jail serving God because this is my brother and this is my sister. And I'm going to do the right thing no matter what the law says. And I told one of our white members last week, I said, man, I thank God for you. He didn't know what I was talking about, where I was going with this. But I said, man, had you and I lived back in the day. I know without a doubt, you would have opened up your home for me. You would have, and you would have hid me. You would have done whatever you could to take care of me and my family because I see it in your heart. But I've met some other white folk who profess to be Christian. And I'm like, boy, I wouldn't want to know you back in the day because you would have tried to own me back in the day. I'm sorry, Lord, I, I don't mean to judge, Father, but man, because when you say, uh, if you want to know where somebody would have stood with Martin Luther King, look where they're standing now. Don't talk about you would have marched with Dr. King and you are for this mess to oppress people against their voting rights. And you're going to quote Dr. King, but you won't check with his daughter to tell you what the meaning of Dr. King's messages were. But you're using it to support a white system. Oh, I got to go. I got, I got to go. I got to go. As we've seen, the Bible has much to say about slavery in the ancient world and in the first century. And we've only scratched the surface. 
Within our context, slavery in America traumatized and devastated millions of African people. The ills of slavery created narratives and myths of racial difference, racial inferiority, and racial superiority that still exist to this day. Slavery fostered systems of oppression and injustice that still persist in our nation and can only be overcome as we regularly acknowledge these inequities and work to eliminate them. For hundreds of years, slavery and segregation conditioned many white people, past and present, to have a false sense of superiority. And for hundreds of years, slavery and segregation conditioned many black people, past and present, to have a false sense of inferiority. Escaped slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass come along, no, and he said, no man can put a chain about the ankle of his fellow man without at last finding the other end of it about his neck. So as you oppress God's people, you are hurting yourself. And in the classic Christian hymn, O Holy Night, my wife loves to sing this part, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. But when I read this, many times I think that the slave is the African in the chains that needs to be set free by Messiah Jesus. But the truth is, the slave master also needs his chains broken by the great chain breaker, Jesus Christ. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. The slave must go free and the slave master must go free and they both must run to the Lord. Because in Christ Jesus, there's neither slave nor free. For we are all one, not the same, one in Christ Jesus. Daddy, I did my best. I pray that your people can eat the chicken and throw out the bones. This is emotional. This is not easy. This is tough. But it's necessary. Look, would you use us to get the word out? Would you help us to beef up our reading of history, our studying of antiquity, so that we can be faithful witnesses of truth? Truth that, of course, is built upon gospel truth. My God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. There's really nothing special about us. We just said yes to your call. Everything is special about you. But would you help us, God, because people don't like to hear this stuff. And our church can get attacked with verbiage. But Lord, there was a time when a church like ours would get attacked with crosses being burned and people putting gasoline around the base to burn it down and setting bombs where little girls can die because they dare to speak the truth. So God, use us to not cower, to not be afraid. I thank you that we're not angry, that we're not bitter. Lord, our hearts are full of love and compassion because what little bit we get to taste in this church, it's our prayer that more believers would taste this, that what we do is more than a gathering on Sunday where we feel good. But when we leave this church, we do life with each other. We have real conversations. We're in each other's families in this church. And Lord, we should not be the, 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 the extreme. There should be more like us. But it won't happen apart from truth. 
So thank you. Bless the house. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.